Hello, everyone. Hi. Welcome back to The Secret Syllabus Podcast. The Secret Syllabus is a production of The Female Quotient and iHeartRadio and co-produced by The Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. I'm Katie Tracy. And I'm Hannah Ashton. And this episode is about money. We know there is the stereotype of a broke college student, but I know for us, Katie and I, we started making money off our YouTube channels in our early teens and had to start thinking about money and managing it and making it pretty young. Yes, we did. Hannah and I met online when we were 13, and I think at the same time, we both started using AdSense on Google, which allowed us to put ads on our videos and gain some money from it. Uh, But actually, what people don't know is before that, another way I earned money was as a freelance designer. So I had a phone case collection with a phone case company based in LA, and I would design for them. And for every phone case I sold, I would get commission out of it. But what about you, Hannah? What was your early adventure like? Yeah. So like you said, making money with AdSense and then going into brand sponsorships, making money through brand collaborations. And then I have always been interested in having a business outside of YouTube as well. And so I started just by doing some YouTube consulting to viewers, helping them start their own channels. I've done some in-person like blogger, female entrepreneur events, which have been super cool. And then in 2019, I launched my first e-commerce physical product business, which was my Dream Achieve workbook planner. So I've always kind of loved talking about money, talking about finances, talking about making money. Um, But I know that's not the narrative for everyone. So what have you felt like has been the relationship between you and money, Katie? This is such a good question because I feel like I had a total different experience than you. So I am an international student. I grew up in the Philippines. My relationship with money was actually very shielded because in my culture, at least, my family would always take care of the money. They would kind of try to shield me from the truths of it. And I was just told to study and work hard. And I didn't really learn as much about it until I went to college in America. And that's where I learned a totally different outlook towards money. People were very financially independent. It was something they sought to be. And in retrospect, I wish my family had taught me more about it. But I'm also, of course, grateful that they wanted me to focus on my education at that point. What about you? I'm thankful that yeah, money and investing and saving was a conversation I had in my family. And I'm thankful for that because I don't think it's a conversation that's had enough in high school. I know in a lot of high schools in America, you take one semester of a like financial class and you just learn about the basics, but they don't really tell you about how to actually save each month, how much money you should put in savings, like if you should invest and where does that even happen and how to avoid uh, maybe large interest loans like on things that we're all paying for like student loans. And so it can be very confusing, I know, for young people out there to learn. But that's why I love how we can go online and find resources. And so through listening to podcasts and reading books, I've learned a few different tips on saving and making money. Uh, One tip that I know is pretty common is the 50 30 20 rule, which basically you divide up your after tax income and you allocate 50% of it to spend on your needs. So if you're paying for rent, groceries, food, transportation, all of that kind of things, and then 30% goes to your once, so whatever you want to spend that month, and then you're also saving 20%, um, you know, for that rainy day fund and hopefully building up a good savings so that if anything happens, you do have some money to lean on that you can pay for your daily expenses. And although I'm not 
this specific about my budgeting now. I do make sure to always save 20% and then I put about maybe 5 to 10% in investment. But what do you feel like the conversations you're having on campus about money have been, Katie, since you said it, it's different now that you've come to the States? So many eye-opening conversations about people's relationships with money. I think the first one is in the States, I've noticed a lot of people take out student loans. The debt crisis is a pretty big thing that I've learned about. A lot of students also do part-time jobs, which was something very different. Uh, back home, it wasn't very common, and there also weren't that many opportunities for, for high schoolers to work either. And a lot of my friends love TAing or being a teacher assistant for classes because they can get paid for teaching a concept they love. And I also just wanted to add to what you said about how some classes don't always teach everything because I'm actually taking a financial accounting class right now. And I am learning though. I definitely learned about the time value of money and how, you know, money today is not worth the same as it is in the future. So you're better off investing. You can use apps like Robinhood or something else to buy shares of a company and over time hopefully if you choose well they'll do well and you'll get a higher return on your money without having to do anything and i've been finding it really fascinating with how you can make your money grow without actively doing any work Mm, well, what you said about investing is so great. I think that's something that a lot of students aren't jumping into. And I know our guest today does talk a little bit about making your money work for you. But I know along with that, along with going into new ventures, new opportunities, maybe new investments, it is also important to save and just understand where your money's going every month. And I know also as college students, though, a lot of my friends you know, are living paycheck to paycheck. It's your part-time job is just covering the expenses you need to live. So one app that I have used before is called Acorns. And this is a great simple way to start just saving a little bit of money each month. And so what it does is it actually rounds up all your transactions. So you safely connect it to your debit card um, or your bank. And so if you paid $5.50 for something, it'll round up the transaction to $6 and take that extra 50 cents and put it into a separate account. So you can make that separate account your savings. And so you're saving money without really even thinking about it. So that's an easy way to like get started, not think about the fact that you're actually saving money um, and it'll be you know a nice surprise at the end of the month to see that savings grow. And then one other app that I actually do use daily is called the Empower Budgeting app. And I love this because it gives me notifications every time I have a transaction so I can make sure that all my transactions are going through safely. And it also gives you little graphs of like how much of your money you're putting towards food, how much you're doing in shopping and all these types of things. So it helps me know where my money is going. And I think if you just start tracking where you're spending, where you're saving, just do that to start so you kind of have an understanding. It'll make you feel a lot more empowered and, and encouraged uh, maybe in your finances and knowing knowing what's what's happening. But do you have any other last tips yourself? Yes, that is so good. Just to echo, I completely agree with saving. That's really all I do with my own earnings with YouTube or sponsorships. I just save them. I'm looking into investing them right now. But for the most part, I just save and try to avoid consumer culture because low key when I was in college, I bought a lot of things I didn't need. Like, mm, did I really need that Mist Diffuser? Not really. Like, yes, it was Black Friday, but you know, I just also cut a lot of the platforms that were telling me I needed this and that. And I realized that I, I really don't need a lot of these things. And especially during COVID, I've realized what really matters has been the people. So I think also surrounding yourself with the things that you really love will help you or could help you make better financial decisions as well. 
And I think this episode is so inspiring to anyone looking to have a better relationship with money. Also, guys, I have to apologize. I sadly could not join this interview. It was at 2 a.m. my time, and I don't really function well at that time. But I know you guys will love this interview. Hannah did an amazing job. And Hannah, do tell us about our guest today. Yes, our guest is Jay Dharmawangza, who is an entrepreneur and digital strategist. She quit high school to start her own online business, and with over 290,000 followers, her personal brand focuses on social media growth and motivation. I loved interviewing Jade because we have been online friends for, I would say, four years now, and I've gotten to see her grow and change and just help so many people with her content and businesses. And I know you guys will all love her. So let's get into the episode. Let's go. Hey, Jade. Welcome to the show. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Of course. I love talking with you. And I love how our stories are so similar, even though we live across the country and have never met in person. You started your YouTube channel at nine years old by turning videos of you playing with dolls into YouTube films. From there, you transformed into an e-commerce business. And how has starting an e-commerce business at such a young age shaped your view and approach to entrepreneurship? Yeah. Um... I think that my view of entrepreneurship since I was nine has changed quite a bit. I think the main thing is I think what really stuck out to me is a lot of people think selling e-commerce is all about, you know, getting revenue. It's all about like the strategy. But when you're a kid, you don't think that way, right? You think in a way of like, what would be fun to do? Like, what would be nice to have? And I think when I was making doll videos on YouTube, I knew that like all I wanted to provide for my audience was a way for them to have that same experience in dolls. So that's how I came up with the product. I feel like sometimes now when I'm older, I overthink things, honestly. And I think about the overall strategy of what's going to be more profitable. And I think the main difference from now and like 10 years ago is just the freedom and creativity that comes when you're just a kid. For sure. I definitely experienced that too. And so I would love for you to tell us a bit about what it is you do now, 10 years later. Wow. Okay. So I was just realizing this. How long have you been on YouTube, Hannah? About 10 years. Oh my gosh. Wait, when was your first video like uploaded? It was an American Girl doll video. And I would say, (laughs) I know we're so similar. Uh, I would say, yeah, around 2009. Same. So 2009 was when I uploaded my first video. My video was like a little pet shop video. Do you know what that is? Yes. I love those too. (laughs) Okay. So 10 years later, Uh, almost 11 actually, which sounds so weird. Most of the videos I make are marketing and business related. I'm the founder of a company called X8 Media. We produce educational videos in the tech industry. So essentially we partner up with brands to launch their YouTube strategy. And we also have a production arm inside the company to produce like actual videos. So that's what we do right now. In addition, in my own personal brand, I do like vlogs and everything in entrepreneurship, similar to Hannah. So that's what I do today. Yes. So you're 19 years old right now. Like you said, you create YouTube videos and you make a lot of content centered on practical, honest advice and how to make money from YouTube and from videos. I love some of your YouTube videos titled how to make $3,000 a month without a degree. You also talk about your six streams of income and how you make money at 18. So who would you say is your audience on YouTube and how would you explain your brand on there? I would say my audience on YouTube are people who either make content or are like solopreneurs. I think that another makeup of my audience are people who don't want the traditional maybe nine to five. And the content I make over there is just centered everything around how to grow as a person on social and also how to grow financially. So 
I think the common thing we all have in common is trying to be the best version of ourselves. Yes, I love how your content is so valuable, but it also has great cinematography and you put a lot of dedication into your quality and you've even done some short films. Can you tell us a little bit about the short film you did titled Create with a Purpose where you talk about the influencer economy? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have this side of me that's still in 2009 making little pet shop videos, but I know like if Hannah and I dropped a doll video in 2020, it would not do so well. So, right. you know, <laughs> my way to compensate that is creating short films about serious topics with cinematography. So that video was made a year ago. And I honestly, I was pretty angry. Like that video was actually made out of anger because <laughs> whenever I have a pressing topic, I always make content out of it. Like sometimes I know how a lot of content creators feel like they have to post every Friday just to post, but I really have a reversed approach where I've done that and it doesn't work well. So this video was not even made out of like, oh, I got to post on Friday type thing. It's more like I was so passionate about this topic. So essentially the idea was I think that for any content creator trying to grow on social media, the number one question that everyone asks is how to grow. And the more universal advice is to find a niche or to pick a spot. And I got really angry with that because I personally struggled with that. Like if I picked a niche from 2009 till now, I would be still making little pet shop videos. And I didn't like being placed in a bubble, not just on YouTube, but in in school or I don't like being told what to do. So that video was basically a short two minute video about how I was actually pretty angry about that advice and how people should just be themselves. If you are an influencer, you don't need to be something uh, just for the sake of views, like genuinely post something, even if it's outside your niche or bubble. And I was also watching a movie called Alita Battle Angel at that time. So a lot of the tracks were inspired by that. So that's how that video came to be. That's great. I definitely have seen that in my story as well as I started out with the doll content, then went to beauty and fashion, and now am in college and focusing on entrepreneurship content. And I think that the idea of the niche is so pushed by online marketers and people telling you to grow your content. But I would love to know what advice you would give to budding creators who are trying to figure out how to create long-term and sustainable content, but not be stuck in that bubble or niche. I think there's a time and place for a niche. I think technically I have a niche. It's just more of like in the very beginning, you want to date a lot of people before you marry someone. So I think it's experimenting. So my best advice is to make a hundred videos and they're going to suck. And you have to be able to publish, not make it perfect. And I think that's the first start, right? Like if you're a YouTuber, that's okay, Jade, I've been making videos for three or four years. I've experimented. I still haven't found traction. A lot of the things I have to say with that is about mending ideas together. So say you are making 100 ideas, but you're being pretty risk adverse with it. Maybe you're combining two trends together to create a new one. And I think that's really the key. I think the real key with YouTube is experimenting. And once you figure out what works, aka what the audience likes, and maybe what's getting views, but also what you enjoy, then you can kind of milk that series. But a lot of people I feel like don't want to experiment because there's a lot of pressure in your first 100 videos to make it right. So I think the best way to go about it is two things. Remove that pressure. Like my first 100 videos sucked and that was a part of the process. So just have that expectation that you might not grow in those 100 videos, but you're going to learn a lot. And the second thing with that is, is really to express yourself and mend new ideas together so you can at least mesh two trends together but still add your spin on it. And I do this a lot with my content. Whenever I see a trend, like for example, a lot of people are doing financial videos, but not a lot of people mended it together with 
cool animation and cinematics. There's so many ways to do this and uh, that gives you endless content ideas as well. That's great advice. I 100% agree with those top two tips. You've said previously that a part of your decision to make a YouTube channel was because of your dad's advice. And around that time, there was the 2008 financial crisis. I know we were only seven or eight at that time. (laughs) But what do you remember about that time? And how, if any, has it reminded you of the current economic crisis and pandemic we're in? Oh, my gosh. I was so young. So the main thing that I remembered was my dad had a software company and in 2008, it did go bankrupt. Like, I didn't know what was going on. I think my dad tried to shelter me from that information. But it's pretty obvious. We moved from L.A. to, like, Texas and then from Texas to Oregon. So we moved around a bit. And I think because of that shift, I didn't have so many friends. Like, I was moving every so often and I had no friend circle that was consistent. So the only thing I could talk to was a camera. So honestly, that's how YouTube actually came about. It was out of my frequent moves. And how it reminds me to this kind of current crisis slash pandemic. Okay, first of all, I was actually talking to a financial advisor. It's a completely different situation. If you guys want to go technical, 2008, it was a housing crisis. This is a obviously viral sickness that's spreading. So because of that, the market is affected in different ways. Because in the in the 2008 market, it was more of like trust with housing and banks. And then this one is more just like trust between peers and our friendships and each other. So because of this, it reminds me in a way of like, every crisis actually is an opportunity to get better. Because for example, you know, in right now, a lot of companies maybe couldn't avoid a lot of problems they had before, where now they're literally forced to be at home and sit down and like face these problems. I'm sure all of us who don't have companies are facing maybe ourselves, right? So honestly, there's always an opportunity. I think my dad saw an opportunity from the crisis to basically use the time that he didn't have the big company to work on to work on himself. And same with this one. Like, this is a lot of time for people to make content, to experiment with new things they haven't before, because you don't have pressure from seeing your friends maybe every day. So you're doing things out of your element. So at the core, the economically, it's different because it's induced in different ways. But I think the effects are the same. People are facing themselves and getting better, whereas I hope they're getting better. And I think it's a great opportunity to take a crisis and take something good. I'm glad you pointed out that there is a difference. 2008, it was the housing uh, crisis. Now it is a health crisis. But what I've thought about through this time is how entrepreneurs are here to solve problems. And with a crisis like the pandemic we're in, more problems have arose. And so there's more opportunity, just like you said, to start a business or become an entrepreneur and solve a problem that we're now facing that we maybe didn't even think we would face eight months ago. And so as you've had so much business experience, even being so young, I'd love to hear any advice you have for people who want to create a business during this time. Yeah. Uh, three industries. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. Healthcare, telecommunications, and financial tech. Those are the three industries that are thriving. Payroll is kind of, uh, payroll is kind of uh, questionable right now, but e-commerce is doing well too. The reason why I mentioned those three industries, it's because they're the ones that are VCs or if, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, venture capitalists or investors are really trying to put money into. Like, it's pretty obvious, like social communications, like this meeting we're on Google Meets is, you know, a product and we need that. So more and more uh, tech companies are creating products to communicate. Similar to Instagram Reels, people are creating more social platforms or TikTok and stuff like that. And fintech and healthcare are, again, pretty obvious as well, like healthcare pretty obvious. Uh, Financial tech is people really want to 
use this time to be a bit more financially stable because people are losing their jobs. And I think if you really can see the pattern of these problems in the industries and start businesses in those, you'll find a lot more success in finding customers who need your product, aka generating revenue. E-commerce is doing really, really well too. I know Hannah is e-commerce as well, so maybe you can testify to this. But, you know, brick and mortars and physical locations are it, it was about to go down anyways, but now it's there's no reason not to. So um, it's a great time to sell physical products. And I talked about like four categories, right? I think the last thing that I would say is like, okay, cool. I know the category. How does that help me? I think it's not about like just like diving into something you don't know, right? Like you don't want to go into financial tech if you don't know anything about financial or tech, right? But it's more about like, say you see a problem and you are in those industries, you want to surround yourself with people that know more than you. So say you're like not the best person at healthcare, right? You don't know much about what's going on, but you're passionate about solving this problem about people getting better. And maybe you sign yourself with three people. One person's a doctor, another person is a patient, and the other person builds software. Just by being around those people and over time just listening and having conversations, I really believe that's the best way to start a business because you're not going to build a mountain without a team. And I really believe Honestly, all the companies I started are on accident. I never started a company that was like, okay, for example, for X8 Media, the content we produce for tech companies was literally, by, someone emailed me and was like, do you do this type of service, creating educational content for a platform? And I'm like, um, maybe. And then I was interviewing them more and more and more brands. And every one of these tech companies have the same problem. For example, for them, they had a trouble explaining their complex product to the everyday person. So YouTube and social media is a great way to make it more relatable. So essentially, I think a lot of starting a business and a lot of people force it is a lot of accidents. It's like, I think I'm curious. It starts with surrounding yourself with the right people. And if you want to do it right, I would start in the right industries. So make sure you maybe you don't start a physical business, obviously, in the middle of a pandemic. So those are like the three elements, I'd say. Um, and it's all pretty organic. Like if you go into the mindset of the vision, you know, it's kind of like a baby, like the best analogy I have is like, you could have the best vision for your child. Like you want them to be a dancer, a football player. You want them to be super smart. But if the baby doesn't want to be any of those things, you're kind of screwed. So it's kind of like going with an open mind and treating a company like a child. (laughs) That's a great, a great analogy. And definitely just paying attention to what that child needs and wants. And also that being your customer too, because as an entrepreneur, you know, you are not just working for yourself, you are working for your customer. And I think that, like you said, there's a lot of opportunity for people to see what's what's needed in the market. Totally. As a young entrepreneur, specifically as a young woman of color, have there been moments where people haven't taken you or your work seriously? And how do you deal with that if you've come across it? I think so. I think um, I think it's more age, but also kind of being Asian American and growing up in a very predominantly male industry, especially with entrepreneurship, right? Like, what is it? Like 2% of female founders are being funded right now. There's definitely moments where I think I walked into a conference. I like I was a speaker at this conference and this dude, bless his soul, but like, what the heck? He was like, oh, why are you here? And I didn't say I was speaking. I just said like, I just basically said like, I got invited by a friend because like, that's actually how it went. And then he was like, oh, cute for like a little modeling gig. And I was like, what? (laughs) And like, there's instances where I'm like, are you not self-aware or just like, I don't even know. So there's instances where people don't take me seriously because I'm not taking seriously. I'm not able to answer in clients for my company. And I think it's a part of the process. Like I try my best not to take it personally and understand that 
when you are trying to serve a need or a problem in the industry, you're going to get pushback and it's a part of the process. So I definitely received that tension and pushback and it's very uncomfortable in the beginning. I'm sure. I actually got mistaken. I was speaking at an event when I was 18, so a senior in high school, and I was like going into the room before I was about to speak to kind of feel it out and check out the stage. And I just kept getting asked, like, why are you back here as an attendee? You're not supposed to be back here. I'm like, no, I'm actually speaking. (laughs) So similar situation for sure. It can be tough navigating a career space when you're in your teens. Yeah, that's so funny. So now that we've talked about ways to make money, what are your thoughts on saving money as a Gen Z? Mm, Okay, I do two things. So I obviously, like, I think this is, you can set this easily up in your bank account, but any income I have, I put in a savings account. I don't put a lot. I'm risk adverse, so I only put 20%. I know some people put like 50. I know some people put 100% and they take like a dollar. I use my cash because I have a team, so I pay them directly. And I reinvest everything I have, but I do do a 20% savings. I used to not do that and I don't know why. So that's what I've implemented. So when it comes to saving money, no matter what, save 20% of what you make. You can even, if you don't even have the self-control, you can add it in your bank account as an automated sequence. Now, the second thing I think is most important. This is my take. I genuinely don't believe saving capital is, there's a, there's a point where it's not very uh, efficient. Unless you're saving up for like a house or something bigger, then that's a, that's not another story. But like a lot of people save money just to save money. And I don't understand why. Because if you're an entrepreneur and you think in a way of like, how can I spend money to get a return? You need to think in that way. Because money that sits in your bank doesn't do anything. Like it just doesn't. And you really want to provide for the economy because if you're growing, then you can hire more people and you contribute. So the way I think about this is after giving myself a salary or whatever I need to to pay for the month, I always reinvest it. I ask myself if I have an extra, let's just say $200, right, this month, how can I reinvest it into myself? If it's a business, it's a business or my YouTube channel to get maybe $300. Like what is the return? And when you think that way, you start to realize that spending money is not a bad thing. I really think it's actually a great thing, especially if you're supporting a business or a freelancer. And I think it's so good to circulate money because that's it's going to help other people. So other than saving 20%, ask yourself, what can I spend today that will allow me to have a positive or return on investment positive future? And for me, I'll give you guys examples because I know it's pretty hard to imagine, but say you have an extra, just say a hundred bucks, right? Imagine you buy with that money, a microphone that will help you post once a week on a podcast that will earn revenue like 50 bucks an episode or something. So it's just super important where even if you can't quantify it, just guess and try it out. And you're going to soon realize that you're going to have more and more cash that goes around, not just to you, but to other people. And I think the most gratifying thing is not just having money, but it's literally giving back. Like, I think that's what's really fun for me. It's like, I am more risk adverse where I don't save that much compared to my maybe other peers. But um, I think it's super gratifying to, to help others. I love your approach to money because I'm the same way. Even before I had my physical product business, which obviously takes a lot of money to start and to run, I would just want to spend my money in high school on books and resources and going to workshops and events where I could learn more trade and digital skills, whether it be how to edit better or just how to manage your time. I think that's a great point. And especially with the stage the economy is in, obviously you want to save for that rainy day. I also save 20% and I think that's a great base. But then also investing in 
places and people that you believe in is really how you can manage your money and take control and have an input in our economy. And so I'm so glad you brought that up and said, yes, saving money is important, but also what's powerful is knowing where to spend and to spend on yourself, meaning investing in yourself and in your future. Totally. Like, I think that what I've been doing recently is just realizing that like the whole point of a business is not to, okay, it is to make money, right? But it's genuinely to circulate money. That's like the whole key, circulating capital. So I love that we're on the same page because I remember like my friend, he's a, he's a freelancer, but he he like makes, let's just say a thousand dollars, like $10,000 a month, right? And he puts it into saving, all of it into savings account. And then throughout the week, he won't take anything out and will like, he'll basically be like, okay, Jade, I'm broke. I'm like, dude, what's the point of this? So I have different spectrums. And it's totally fine if you do that. I think what I really find amazing is not just spending money, but it's, it's genuinely like being able to have the cash so you can help someone or buy product like Hannah, maybe from other suppliers. And it's, it's just great to, to contribute. Exactly. And do you have any resources you love for managing money, any apps or websites that you use? Uh, so I recommend an app called Zero, but it's really hard to manage because I hate tracking stuff. So I got a bookkeeper. So that's been really helpful. But if you're looking for a good money management software, Zero is a bookkeeping software that helps you easily track your books and expenses. What I actually want to talk about is my friend's company. This is just because I like supporting smaller businesses and startups because I feel like there's a more pie to go around there. Uh, my friend has a company called Carrot. Uh, it's tricare.com. And they are a credit card company for influencers. So instead of taking your FICO score, they look at your social media following. And I love that so much for maybe, because, you know, me and Hannah started at like freaking 12. You can't get a credit card at 12 or nine, right? So my friend's company called Carrot, uh, we're partnering them up with them on some projects in the future. But I have seen a lot of companies actually start to make products for influencers, specifically in this economy. One of them is Carrot. So if you're someone who needs a credit card, but you are too young or your FICO score is not there, try carrot. So that's a little bit about my two recommendations. I love that concept. I will definitely be checking them out. And I'd love to know, since you didn't take the normal college route, um, do you feel like not going to college and not taking the normal student route has helped you save or lose money? Or how has it affected your finances? Yeah, so I didn't have money to begin with. Like, <laughs> like uh, to be honest, like I wanted to go to the University of Southern California. Like my, my dad went to there. My family went there like it was just a dream school. It's a nice school, but expensive. So if I had the money to pay for it, I totally would go there. I just didn't when I was like 16. My parents just didn't have the money. So to answer your question, yeah, I saved a lot of money. Like we, we didn't have the money to begin with. Now, looking back, like there's a couple of experiences that are priceless, right? Like having a college experience, having friends in college, being a normal teenager and feeling like you are not growing up too fast. And that's priceless to me. And I don't have that. I don't have that still. And that is something that I question a lot because sometimes I wonder if I grew up too fast because I dropped out of school at 16. So not only did I leave high school, but part of my college, uh, high school and college experience as well. So that I'm not sure about, but I definitely saved money in short term. It's just a matter of like, is Jade personally happy with that decision? Um, And I think I am. It's just like, it's just sometimes I do wonder like, hmm, what would life be like if I was going this route? But I, I do realize that like my my social circle might not look the same in a college hemisphere, but I have online friends like Hannah and other people, but it's just different, right? So that's kind of my take on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad you share your story because I think having different narratives that different people can relate to in content creators and influencers is so important. And so I love that you're open about 
the fact that you stopped in high school and you decided to venture into entrepreneurship. But finally, I would love to know a little bit about your thoughts on the consumer power of Gen Z. Since you help businesses market to Gen Z, what do you find the buying habits are for our generation? Good question. So it's hard to say because depending on the area and you know, the financial situation, it's different. But this is kind of my analysis. So the funny thing is, if you were to tell me six months ago this question, I would have a completely different answer. Back beginning of this year, I was working on a company called Eat Like with a few other investors and partners, but it was a food subscription company where people can eat like their favorite influencers. Um, really fun project. Don't work on that anymore. But the reason why is like our entire marketing strategy was marketing to Gen Z. So Gen Z really at the end of the day values either cost or experience. And let me explain. So we were selling food boxes, right? What we realized is we either had two options. We can get a consumer to buy based on low cost, $10 a month, right? You get $50 worth of snacks. Great, great buy-in. People bought that immediately. Like we got a lot of conversions. The other way you can do it is by experience. Say it's a $50 box, right? Like that doesn't make sense for a kid, but they value the the artesian factor or there's a story behind it or the influencer handcrafted the box or there's just a nice message. Consumers will buy, right? Because it has status, it has experience and a little bit of luxury. And what I realized is you don't have to play in the Amazon economy where you're trying to just be the cheapest product. Evan reported to me in a survey that they get around 11 to like 20 packages a quarter from online. So it just shows you that there's huge purchasing power in Gen Z. Most of it will be cheap products, right? From Amazon or like Princess Polly or just like kind of like, you know, big fast fashion names, which is unfortunate, but they do still spend money on artesian products. Like the other day, my friend told me that she bought like a $700 longboard and I was surprised based on the product or situation, but it does mean if you're a luxury product or you're more expensive, you still can market. It's all about how are you telling that story? How are you utilizing influencers or people that have trust already built up? And how are you being flexible? Because for Eat Like specifically, we had to literally go back and forth on being the cheap product or the a comedy product and then the like luxury-ish product. And we still have to find that middle balance. So I think you're going to, if you're a company or you're trying to understand Gen Z, just try to create two different products, experiment, and you'll get your answer then. Absolutely. And I believe what sets Gen Z apart from younger generations in the past is that so many of us are already in the workforce, like you and me being self-employed or students getting more jobs in college. And obviously with the influencer economy, people can start making money at age 15 or maybe even younger. Exactly. So That's like, a good point. Yeah. Like you said, Gen Z has money to spend and it's just deciphering if they want to go maybe a more cheap route with your product, or if you have a story or you give back or there's a sustainability aspect, then we are willing to pay a little bit more of a premium. Like, I'm sorry, but like, I remember like these bracelets called like Lokai bracelets, not to uh, shit on them because their uh, company is doing well. I know their founder, but I mean, like every kid bought that bracelet. It was like a $20 bracelet. But if you were to ask Gen Z with the mindset of like, oh, they're broke, like, no, they just value the story behind it. It's a simple bracelet, but because there's a story, there's like a branding around it, it's valuable. So you make a good point, Kanna. Like most Gen Zers, um, at least maybe in my circle, are working. So that's a huge change because you remember like 10 years ago, you have to graduate high school or college first before you can get a job. So you make a really good point there that like there's nine-year-olds or 15-year-olds making money on TikTok. And that's really interesting now because it had never happened before. Yes, and I definitely had one of those bracelets along with my brother, like maybe even had multiple. (laughs) 
Same. <laughs> well, I love talking money and career with you, Jade, but sadly we will have to wrap up. But I would love to know what projects you are currently working on and where our listeners can find you. Guys, thank you so much for listening, Hannah. It has been a pleasure. If you guys want to find me, um, I'm actually hosting a virtual event for anything content creation, financial, and, um, and I have YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram, Twitter. Feel free to reach out there. Yes, you'll have all her links in the show notes because she provides great content all the time and it's definitely resourceful. So thank you again, Jade. Hannah, that was an amazing interview with Jade. I wish I was there, but I still do have a takeaway and it's that if you have an idea, sometimes the best move is to just jump on it. Don't fall into analysis paralysis and overthink it to the point that it stops you from acting at all. Some of the best things in my life have come from just acting on a whim and letting my enthusiasm guide the way. For example, I used to talk to a mirror and one day I tried talking to a camera and look where we are now making YouTube videos. I also used to design and code my blog on Tumblr when I was 11 because I wanted rainbow cursors and now I'm an information science major at Cornell University studying product design and web and app development. So stay in tune with your childhood hobbies because they can reveal a lot about your interests. That makes me so happy to hear about your childhood to get you to where you are now. But my takeaway would be to look out for opportunities to make, save, or invest money. Jade said she started many companies from accidents, and I would relate to that, but this applies not just for entrepreneurs starting companies. Like, seriously, if you're around a family friend and they're looking for a babysitter and you have some free weekends offered to babysit, there are opportunities everywhere for you to generate income, and I think just growing awareness to look out for those opportunities is so important. Mm-hmm. Yep. As always, you can keep in touch with us on Instagram. I'm Katie, and you can find me at AlohaKatieX. And I'm Hannah. You can find me at Miss Hannah Ashton. The Secret Syllabus was created by the Female Quotient in partnership with iHeartMedia and co-produced by the Female Quotient and Wonder Media Network. The Female Quotient is committed to advancing equality and elevating women from college campuses to the corner office. You can find out more at www.thefemalequotient.com. See you after class. Bye.